Well, the scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. We're going through a new series of sermons. We're taking a, a bit of a break from our series on Ephesians, and we're looking for the next three weeks at this gospel of Matthew. And the beginning of Matthew starts with a genealogy. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the reading of God's word. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadab, and Amimadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportations to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Beid, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azaz, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. I'm getting a little tired. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word, your word of grace, your word which seems so obscure at times. Pray that you'd make it clear to us. Thank you for uh, this time that we can anticipate the coming of Jesus and how we long for him. I pray that this, this sermon would be spirit-filled, that you would direct it, especially to people who are needy of a word of grace, of needy of a word of healing, needy of a word of hope, which is all of us. So speak to us now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, during the Advent, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. We're just spending some, a few weeks in Matthew. And we're celebrating Advent. Advent is a, is a Latin word which means coming at at Advent, we celebrate a couple things. One is the coming, the first coming of Jesus. But Advent is also a season of hope where we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. And to do that, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew's Gospel uh, begins with this genealogy. This genealogy which tells us about essentially the family tree of Jesus. You know, in the last few years, there's been a proliferation of genetic tests that you can do at home. Uh, some companies will give you a swab, you swab your mouth, you give them a saliva sample, you send it off in the mail, and weeks later, you get a, uh, an analysis, a genetic analysis. You can do an analysis of your genetic predispositions, 
you can also do analysis of your ancestry, where your ancestors came from, what region of the world you are from. And, you know, ancestry and also talking your family tree, if you've ever done your family tree, can be richly rewarding. It's, it, it can be really uh, informative to know your family history. That's why it's amazing to talk to your parents and grandparents about their lives, their parents, so you can know your parents' parents. Because sometimes what you realize when you talk to your, uh, your family and you dig into your ancestry is that it really tells you a lot about who you are. Uh, it tells you, uh, you see patterns emerge when you look at your ancestors. Uh, family sins, family issues that are perpetuated through generation and generations. Uh, your ancestry can tell you about who you are and also where you're going. It can give you clues to that. It's really rich and rewarding. And today, so what we want to do is look at Jesus' ancestry. Now, let's look at Jesus's 23andMe. What is his family tree? What is Jesus' DNA? What is that all about? Because Matthew grows through pains to list all of these names. And he's doing that to show us the essence of who Jesus is and why he has come. Uh, today, we're looking at Jesus' genealogy. And we're going to look at three things that this genealogy tells us. The first thing is the grace of God. We're going to look at God's patience. And finally, God's joy. Those three things, grace, patience, and joy. And the first thing is God's grace. And we're looking at Matthew's uh, gospel. There are four gospels. They're written from different perspectives or different camera angles of the same event. And they tell the birth of Jesus in different ways. Matthew decides he's going to start the story of Jesus by going way back. He's going to give the genealogy of Jesus. He's going to list all of his forefathers and ancestors, the men and women, we're going to get to that, before Jesus. Uh, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Uh, why does Matthew begin with a genealogy? It doesn't seem like an exciting way to begin a story of Jesus. By giving a list of names, essentially. It doesn't seem dramatic. doesn't seem exciting. Why does Matthew start with that? And one of the first reasons why he starts with that is that he wants to see the story of Jesus in historical terms. You know, if you uh, read fairy tales, if you read uh, stories to your children, most fairy tales begin with the words, once upon a time. Once upon a time, uh, or a time before there was time. Uh, the Star Wars series famously starts with a long time ago, what, in a galaxy far, far away. Once upon a time, in a galaxy far, far away. That's how a lot of fables start, uh, because it's not rooted in actual in an actual place. It's not rooted in an actual historical time. It's a timeless. It's a timeless uh, uh, time. It's a placeless place. That's what makes the gospel so different. Matthew wants to start with not once upon a time, but he starts with actual historical names and places. Archaeologists have, through the centuries, gone to uh, uh, to the, the place of the Bible. They've dug up ruins. There's all kinds of archaeological uh, evidence for exact cities in the Old Testament. Uh, places. Each of these names are historical names. 
which can be traced and followed. And what Matthew is doing is that he's trying to tell us that Jesus Christ is not some fictional characters. Some people believe that the Bible is a fairy tale. Jesus is just a mythical figure. But almost every historian, prominent historian who has ever lived, says that Jesus was a historical person. And what Matthew is doing is that he wants to root the story of Jesus in history. He wants to say, well, this Jesus is a historical person. And he goes way back in history. But the second reason why Matthew wants to begin with a genealogy is he wants to show us who Jesus is and why he came. In verse 1, he goes through the genealogy of Jesus. And he starts with a, a heading, if you will. It says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and Abraham were two of the greatest figures in the Old Testament. David was the greatest king. Abraham was the great patriarch. God said to Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. You're going to be the great godfather, if you will, the great patriarch of all the nations, the father of faith. And Matthew begins with this uh Stunning title. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. But then as we get into this genealogy, uh, we see all of these names. There are a lot of names in here. uh, But what's helpful to, to realize is that this is not an exhaustive list. It's not a list of every single person that came before Jesus. Uh, In fact, there is an omission of five kings in this genealogy. It's not complete. It's not exhaustive. Rather, it's helpful to look at this genealogy as selective. There are themes that emerge throughout this genealogy. Uh, One of the themes that we find, one of the clues to the fact there are themes, is that there are four women listed in this genealogy. You know, in ancient times, it was very rare for women to be included in the genealogy. It's all about the men. It's all about the patriarchs. And they were listed, and women were often not listed in genealogy. They were not as important. But Matthew says, no, I'm not going to do that. He lists intentionally four women in this genealogy. He goes through pains to list them now. There are four women, and it tells us a theme of what this genealogy is about. These four women, verse 3, Tamar, verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, Bathsheba, who is called the wife of Uriah. These four women, what do they have in common? They're women, but secondly, they are foreigners. They're outsiders. Uh, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was from Moab. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Not only were they women, which is stunning in a genealogy, in a male-dominated society, but secondly, they're not even Israelite. They're foreigners from different nations. Third, they were all, and all of these four women were involved in some sort of sexual scandal. We know that uh, if you look back at the Old Testament and you track the stories of these women, Tamar uh, dressed up as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law with sleeping with her so she can have a child. Uh, Rahab was a Rahab was a prostitute. Uh, Ruth, probably the mildest one of them all, broke in. Uh, to Boaz's house, undressed him and proposed to him in the middle of the night. Finally, Bathsheba was sexually assaulted by King David. In fact, Matthew goes through pains to talk about that assault. 
In verse 6, it's interesting because Matthew could have just listed Bathsheba's name and Solomon. But he doesn't do that. In verse 6, this is what Matthew writes. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew, instead of just saying Bathsheba, says, oh no. Uh, Well, Bathsheba was actually not David's wife, but she was the wife of Uriah. And Matthew intentionally goes there, not because he doesn't want to cover anything up, but he's actually highlighting one of the darkest moments in David's life where he uh, saw Bathsheba bathing. Uh, Bathsheba was the wife of his best general, Uriah, his most loyal, faithful man. He sexually assaults his wife. She gets pregnant. He covers it up by murdering, ordering the murder of his best general, his best man. They eventually have a child who is named Solomon. And Matthew, what he's doing is he's highlighting that. He doesn't want to hide all of these things. Often in ancient times and genealogies, uh, authors or prominent people would hide people in their genealogy that were shameful. For instance, we know historically Herod the Great deleted a lot of names in his public genealogy from the record. Men he was ashamed about. He would delete them so that no one would see that he's associated with them. That's often what we do with resumes, with our resumes. If there are companies or places that we work for that we're ashamed of, we don't list them on a resume. We don't want to be associated with that negative vibe. That's what a lot of us do. But in Matthew's genealogy, he's not doing any of that. He's intentionally, selectively including women, outsiders, People who are scandalized in shame. Why does he do that? Matthew wants to show us that Jesus came from broken people for broken people. Matthew wants to show us that Jesus did, did not have this perfect family. But his family history has a lot of scandal and shame. You know, we, um, the holidays are stressful times for a lot of people because uh, we have family gatherings. And a lot of times in family gatherings, it could be not fun. You could have a hostile relationship with your parents or your kids. You can have relatives that you have arguments, you have beef, you have family drama and history. And Jesus says to you this morning, I can relate to that. My family has all kinds of, of, of they have all kinds of skeletons in their closets. There's all kinds of turmoil Uh, My earthly family is messed up. I can relate to all of that. But ultimately what Jesus, what Matthew is saying through this genealogy is that Jesus can redeem any story. He can redeem any story. Think about Tamar and Rahab. Tamar committed incest. Rahab was a prostitute. Think about all the shame these women must have carried from doing that. A burden that they carried. And what Jesus says to these women is, I can redeem your story. I can lift the shame from your life. I've come, uh, Jesus comes to these women who are outsiders, who are far away, seemingly, from the story of God and says, no, I'm going to include you in my story. He brings, Jesus has come to bring outsiders in. He's come to lift the shame, the shame that are part of our stories and our family. Uh, Jesus says to all of us, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to heal you. 
Who is Jesus? He doesn't come from this great pedigree, this line of immaculate, righteous people. But Matthew says, no, Jesus came from a broken up, busted up line of people with issues, problems, and shame. He came from all of that, and he's come to heal all of that. He's come to restore us. He's come, he's come for me, not for the perfect people. He's come for me. Throughout the series, I'm going to highlight some uh, hymns that are classic, Christmas hymns, Advent hymns. Uh, one of them we sang. We didn't actually sing this line from Joy to the Lord, Joy to the World, but one of the uh, lines of Joy to the World, the classic hymn is, He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The curse is, after Adam and Eve sinned, the curse was everywhere. It's responsible for all the darkness and brokenness, but joy to the world says, well, Jesus has come to make the blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He's come to, re- to reverse the curse. He's come to heal. He's come to restore. He's come for me. Uh, the genealogy shows us that God is a God of grace. Thank God for that. But here's the second thing. This genealogy shows the patience of God. Uh, when you read the genealogy, and I read it this morning, one of the things that you realize is that it's really long. I struggled actually to read it this morning. It has a whole long list of names. And one of the things I think you're supposed to feel when you read a genealogy like this is that you're supposed to feel how long it is. You're supposed to see all of these names. And every time you read a name, you're supposed to be like, man, I can't, I can't wait for this to end. Like, why are there so many? These names are hard to pronounce. Like, who are these people? Can't we just get to Jesus? We kind of feel the sense of that. And I think, I believe, Matthew wants us to feel that. Matthew wants us to feel the length and all of these people. And he actually counts it out for you. Right at the end, in verse 17, Matthew says this. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Matthew counts out all the generations, generations after generations. We're going to see that's 42 generations. And he's counting them all out. And he's talking about the length, generation after generation that came before Jesus. And he wants us to feel the weight of it and the length of it. Why did God take so long to come? You know, there's a 400-year intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not only before Jesus, but even in the middle between the Bible, if you will. There's 400 years where God said no prophets. He said nothing during those 400 years. There's a long wait before Jesus. Why is that? Why did God take so long to come to us? The waiting in the genealogy uh, mirrors our own experiences. There's so often times in my own life, I said to God, God, please show up. Why is it taking you so long? You know, have, you, have you ever asked God that? God, why is it taking you so long to show up in my life? Why, why am I waiting so long for an answer from you? Can you just show up and direct me? 
Why is the darkness, why is the darkness not lifting in my life? My sadness, my depression, my lostness. And the genealogy, it mirrors that waiting for God to show up. And it begs the question, why does God take so long? Why does God take so long? And one of the reasons is before we get to the solution, uh, we have to understand the problem. If God immediately came down in Genesis uh, 2 after Adam and Eve sinned and immediately sent Jesus, we would not really understand the length and depth of our own sin and our need for God's grace. Uh, This year, some of us got started on uh, the Bible reading program. Almost exactly a year from today, we announced a Bible reading program. And a lot of us started off with a lot of ambition, like, man, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year. But uh, a lot of us fell off, and it was difficult because the Old Testament is long. Some of you have experienced that this year. There's a lot of chapters in the Old Testament. There's a lot of history. And on top of that, the Old Testament is very cyclical. You see cyclical themes in the Old Testament. This is the big meta-cyclical theme in the Old Testament. This is it. Uh, When God's people were in pain... Or in slavery, or times were hard, they called out to God, like, God, help us. When times were good and God blessed them, they forgot God. When times were hard again, they called out to God. When it was good, they forgot God and they decided they want to be like everybody else, like all the other nations. That was the cyclical cycle in the Old Testament till we get to the deportation and exile in Babylon. That's mentioned in verse 17. And essentially, that's the story of our lives. The Old Testament is the story of our lives. That sometimes the only times we ever go to God is when times are hard. And when times are good, we forget God. We think we're good. We want to be just like everybody else. The Old Testament is really a picture of our own heart. Uh, The Old Testament is filled with bloodshed and war and violence and self-centeredness and dictators because it's a reflection of our world today. It shows us what is inside of our heart. And here's the big takeaway. Only when we see the darkness of our own heart can we appreciate the brilliance of God's light. Only when we see that God is all we have do we realize God's all we actually need. If Jesus immediately came down before we realize that, we might think that Jesus has just come to give us a pep talk. He's just like a coach, a, a, a leader. But only after thousands of years of darkness and depravity and self-centered people do we realize when Jesus finally shows up, we finally realize, man, Jesus, you are not just one way. You're the only way. Jesus, you've not just come to be a, a good leader to give us advice. You're the Savior. You've come to save and rescue us. Only after all of that history can we appreciate Jesus is the Savior we desperately need. Uh, Advent is an important time because we get in touch with the darkness in our own heart. In our, and, and only when we do that, uh, if we don't know our own darkness and sin, we will become people who are very self-righteous. We will be very judgmental to other people. We will condemn other people. Only when you sit in your darkness 
during this Advent season? Well, we really appreciate the light of Jesus. That's why in Isaiah 9, 2, this is what it says. Isaiah the prophet says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And Isaiah says, The people who experience the light are people who are sitting in darkness. Advent is a season of leaning into the darkness, sitting in the darkness. Only when you experience the darkness can you see the brilliance and beauty of Jesus. This year I've been through uh, uh, counseling with a lot of people. And probably more than any other year, this has been a year of a lot of darkness for people. People who have struggled in their marriages. People who have struggled with finances. People who struggle with mental health issues. People who have lost loved ones. People whose heart is aching. I've sat with so many people uh, this last year. And I see through the year God moving in their life. I can see God humbling them. I can see God working and purifying their heart. And faith means that uh, we believe that in the midst of the darkness, the light will break in. You know, when you're sitting in darkness, there's basically two options when you're in a dark place. One is to be cynical. One is to believe, man, there is no hope. Cynicism is what our culture does. You know, we live in a place of political turmoil, of uncertainty, of environmental concern, of injustice. And it's easy to become cynical. If you look at the movies in the last few years, most of them have an apocalyptic tone of chaos, of darkness, of violence, of unrest. One, one attitude we can have is that we can join our culture in being cynical. Uh, believing that nothing will get better. God's not going to show up. But the other alternative to cynicism is faith. Faith uh, and hope are intertwined. Hope is essentially faith for the future. That's what hope is. Hope is believing that God will show up. The the darkness will lift and mourning will break into this world. And why can we be so hopeful? Well, you know, when you look at the Old Testament, it was not just about our unfaithfulness, but the Old Testament essentially is not about our brokenness, but it's about God's faithfulness. You know, through all the, the generation after generation of men, God's people forgetting him, Following other idols and nations, do you know what God does? He's so patient with them. He's so faithful. Generation after generation, forgot, denied, reduced God. God's patient. God's patient with us. God, God, though we are faithless, he is faithful. God sticks with us. But the ultimate reason to have hope, especially in the midst of our darkness, is that God has already come in Jesus. Uh, the the time of waiting in this genealogy finally breaks. Jesus does finally come. 2,000 years ago, God punctured a, a hole through time and space. And he came, took on flesh, and he moved into our neighborhood. He moved into our neighborhood. Sometimes I talk to people in downtown and they say, well, if God is real, then why does he just come down, do all kinds of miracles? And show us the way. And I'll believe him then. And I'm saying, 
He already did that. You know, Jesus already did that. He came into history. He's a historical figure. Did do all kinds of miracles. Did start a movement that has covered the whole world. And in Advent, we remember, oh God, you are faithful to your promises. God, you are, you are true. The darkness has lifted. And Advent is a season to remember he's coming again to complete that work. God, you will lift my pain, my sadness, my grief, my questions. Uh, Advent is a season of turning our cynicism into faith. Our cynicism and our unbelief. And lifting that up to God in faith. But here's the last thing about this genealogy, which uh, it tells us about who God is and why Jesus came. It tells us about the joy of God. The climax of the genealogy is found in verse 17. And this climax is rather enigmatic, so let me take you through it. Verse 17 says this. So, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon... 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The last, uh, this last verse is essentially an overview, a summary of the whole genealogy. And Matthew breaks it down in a very numerological way. Uh, he says there's 14 generations between Abraham and David. Another 14 generations from David to the deportation. The final 14 from the deportation to Christ. There's 14, 14, 14. Matthew's really trying to, he loves that number 14. Like why has he been so, in fact, he tailors this whole genealogy. He leaves out some names. I mentioned he leaves out five kings. He really wants to make the point of 14 generations, 14 generations and 14 generations. Why is that important? Well, you know, in, in the Bible, numbers are important. The most important number for you to remember, if you want to understand numbers in the Bible, is the number seven. That's, that's the number that unlocks all the other numbers. Uh, seven is important. Right in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, God creates the world in six days. The seventh day is a Sabbath. It's a rest. In fact, in Israel's laws, the seventh year, every year, was a Sabbath year of rest. Fields had to rest for that seventh year. The seven times seven years, the 49th year was the year of Jubilee. That's the seven times seven. That's the 49th year was the year of Jubilee. What was the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee was when the 49th year, a trumpet would sound. If you're a slave, you are set free. If you had any kind of debt, credit card debt, it was forgiven. If you were, if you had property that you sold, it was given back to you. It's, and uh, this is the best news of all. On the 49th year of the year of Jubilee, nobody worked. God says, I am going to so take care of you. The 48th year is going to be like a double, triple harvest. So that in the 49th year, you don't have to worry about anything at all. You're just going to drink some wine and celebrate that whole year. It was an amazing year of celebration, of victory. It was a year where you remembered. It, it should occur once in your life. Where you remember, I am not my job. No, I'm not, I'm not my job. I'm not what everyone else tells me I am. I am free. It was a powerful year. So let's get back to the 14th. What does that have to do with this text? Well, if you get back to the 14th, there's 14 generations. 14 generations of 14 generations. Add that all up. What's that number? 
I'm bad at math as well. So I had to take it out of calculator. It's actually the number 42. Number 42. So why is the number 42 important? Well, 42 is how many sevens? It's six sevens, right? Six sevens. It's missing what? One last seven. What Matthew is going to pains to tell you is that Jesus is the final seven. Jesus, what, is the jubilee. That's what he's trying to say. He's done all of this to get to this one point. Jesus is the jubilee. All of human history, all of biblical history is all about the final coming of Jesus, who is the jubilee. In Jesus, the slaves are set free. In Jesus, all the debt that we owe to God is forgiven. In Jesus, we, are, we can celebrate. We don't have to work. All of religion is about working for your righteousness. Jesus says, I've done it all for you. I've done all the work. Just rest in me. Jesus is our celebration. Jesus in Jesus, we are set free from the power of sin and death. In Jesus, we can celebrate. Matthew's going through pains to go through this long list of names and people and generations so that when we finally get to Jesus, we can finally rejoice. He is the answer to all of our longings. You know, I, I want to close with this thought. You know, we talked about this whole idea of genealogies. And it's, genealogies are essentially family histories. And what the Bible ends with is this idea that if you trust in Jesus, you too are added to his genealogy. If you trust in Jesus, in Hebrews 2, it says that God is not ashamed to call you a brother. Let's look, with, look at this last verse in Revelation 3, 5. This is what it says. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Uh, the book of life was essentially a book of names. And in every city, there was a book that listed the residents of that city and was listed by families. And what God says at the end of the whole, his whole book is that if you believe on Christ, you're listed in my book, in my genealogy. You're part of my family. Jesus says, I don't care where you have come from, what you have done in your life, no matter how much shame you have. In Christ, you are forgiven. You are set free. In Christ, you can rest. And finally, you're brought into my family line. And that word, your name, is written, and it says no one's going to blot your name out. It's written with indelible ink. No, one's will, no, no one will ever take your name out of this book of life. And in Advent, we remember that great hope, our destiny, our hope, our Savior, our King. Advent is a time where we lean into the darkness. We come to the end of ourselves, and we come to the fullness of of God's grace, God's light in Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we want to use this time to confess our own darkness. And this has been some dark times for some of us struggling uh, in places of addiction, places of 
broken relationships, in places of uncertainty. And Father, I pray instead of running from those things, we would lean into the darkness and help us in that come to the end of ourselves. Help us to to come to the end of self-help, self-righteousness, and help us to begin this journey of faith. Pray that in this Advent season, we would see you as not just a guide, but a savior and a king. So I pray that you would be our light and our salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.